Today's scripture reading is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 12. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you're slow to learn. In fact, though, by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful for those whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak of this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will, forget your, he will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. This is the word of the Lord. Can you lose your salvation? That's the question we're going to talk about today. Can someone who is a follower of Jesus Christ, somebody who has turned from his or her sins and believed in the gospel message that Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection are the source of our hope and the source of our forgiveness, can that person end up denying the faith and be separated from God forever? This passage that you just heard Lane read might, on first glance, suggest that the answer is yes. That a true Christian, somebody who knows Jesus, can in fact lose his or her salvation. Can come to the end of the line, so to speak, and find out all of a sudden that he is going to be separated from God forever. Is that what this passage teaches? Well, verses 4 through 6 of chapter 6 come close to sounding that way. Let me read that again real carefully. Chapter 6, verse 4, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. Does that mean that a true Christian can lose his or her salvation? You know, these are some of the most hotly debated verses in all the Bible. 
These verses have been interpreted a lot of different ways by various people down through the ages, and we're going to try to tackle them today. And in one sermon, (laughs) answer all questions, right? In one sermon, make sure everybody totally understands it. Well, that's my goal. I'm going to try because that's a very, very important question. To answer the question today, can you lose your salvation? I want to give you three things to take away with you. First, a serious problem. Second, a solemn warning. And third, a sure promise. A problem, a warning, and a promise. Let's get going. First, what is this serious problem that I'm alluding to? The author of this book of Hebrews is aware of a serious problem among the people to whom he's writing this letter. Now, in case some of you have not been here for a while, or maybe you've just started coming recently, let me kind of give you a bit of review. We're in the midst of a study of this book in the New Testament called Hebrews. And I'm calling this series, Jesus the Crux. It's kind of a weird word, but crux means the the main thing, the essence, the core. Jesus is the essence of the book of Hebrews, just as he is the essence or the core of life. So Jesus the Crux, that's the name of the series. And we're looking at Hebrews, and here we are in chapter 5 and chapter 6. What have we learned so far? We've learned so far that this book is basically a a, a sermon more than a letter. It's It's a sermon from a man who you might want to consider a pastor writing this letter to a congregation of largely Jewish Christians who were living in Rome around the date 65 to 68 A.D. It was a tough time to be a Christian if you were living in the Roman Empire then. The emperor was a fellow by the name of Nero. He was mean and harsh and cruel, and Christians were killed and persecuted for their faith. And this congregation of people, because of the pressure of persecution around them, was being tempted to revert back to their old Jewish faith. That is to turn their back on Jesus and to relinquish their newfound faith in Christ to abandon their their practices as Christians and return to the practices that Jewish people would have would have observed. Um, In other words, they're tempted to commit apostasy. Now, that's not a word we've used in this study so far, but it's now one we're going to start using. Because these people to whom the letter was written are, commit, are uh, tempted to commit apostasy. What is apostasy? It's renouncing your connection with Christ. If you were to commit apostasy as an American citizen, it would mean that you renounce your citizenship, that you're no longer proud to be an American, you don't want to be identified as an American, you criticize America, and so on like that. You give it up and you go the other way. And that's what apostasy is with Jesus You no longer give your allegiance to Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. And as this pastor looks out across his, if you will, congregation, he sees a sight that, frankly, I see on Sunday morning as I look across this congregation. He saw people of every stripe, you know, young and old, various backgrounds, male and female, educated, not so well educated, etc., And as he looks out upon them, he knows that they have one thing in common, and that is they all profess to be Christians. They all profess that they have found Jesus and that he is their Savior and their Lord. But he's very concerned by what he sees also. His concern is expressed beginning in verse 11 of chapter 5. 
Let's go back to the very first verse you heard Lane read. It says, we have much to say about this, and this is the previous paragraph. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. Now, the author is not criticizing the the Hebrew Christians for being unintelligent. And really, slow to learn is not the best translation of that Greek word. A better translation is lazy, dull of hearing, sluggish, slothful. In fact, it's odd to me that they said slow to learn because it's the Greek word for which they translated it in verse 12 as lazy. It's the same word. So he is saying, we have much to say about this, but I can't. I can't, <laughs> I can't really go deeper with you guys because you are kind of lazy. That's his That's his concern. They've lost their appetite for Christian truth. Maybe at one time, maybe right after they met Jesus, they used to wake up in the morning and really look forward to opening the Bible and digging into some good Christian spiritual book, but they've lost their appetite for that. They they no longer look forward to learning and growing as God's people. They don't really get a lot out of their morning devotions anymore. But now... They should have been teachers. By now, sorry. By now, they should have been teachers. See, it says in verse 12, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. See, he's saying that you guys are still spiritual babies. And and I've given you a long time to grow out of that. But you're still stuck in your spiritual baby stage. You're still learning the ABCs of the Christian faith instead of digging into the word of God and and digging after and going after deeper doctrines. When you should be a teacher of other people, you're still reading the Dick and Jane books of your childhood. That's kind of what he's saying. And not only that, not only is he concerned about their laziness, their immaturity, and they seem to be content with that immaturity. Not only that... But he also sees that they show an alarming lack of discernment in their Christian lifestyle. It says in verse 14 that solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. He's implying here that some of you show that you're not really a discerning person. Some of you are living without integrity, he's saying. Maybe some of them have been cheating on their their income taxes or fudging with their expense accounts or looking at online pornography or gossiping about other people. You understand what I'm doing here. I'm, I'm saying if they were in our context, in our culture, that would be some of the concerns that this pastor is feeling toward this congregation. An alarming inability to distinguish between good and bad. Blurring the line between good and evil taking liberties that they shouldn't. And that's, again, part of his concern. So in chapter 6, verse 1, you hear what he's saying? He's saying, come on, guys, already. Come on, let's go. Let's leave the ABCs of the Christian faith and go on to maturity. Stop being content with milk. Let's move on to some solid theology. Let's not lay again those same foundational beginning truths that we've gone over time and time and time again. As far as what those foundational truths were, he lists them in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. 
He says there are things like repentance from acts that lead to death, faith in God, baptisms, the laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and so on and so forth. Now, you and I look at that list and we think, wow, that's not a light list. Those are actually pretty deep things. But for them, apparently, they were kind of the beginning training of a child. They were part of the catechism. See, we do, we do the shorter catechism here or the children's catechism, right, for some of our kids' classes. And this is part of their catechism. And the, the, the author, the pastor, is saying, you, you guys covered that a long, a long time ago. You should be in the larger catechism now. You should be you should be in the deeper stuff, the deeper waters of Christian understanding. And the fact that these Christians to whom he's writing seemed content. See, here's the point. Don't mishear me, please. I worried about this after the first service. He's not criticizing the fact that they like that stuff. That's still very, very important. What's bothering this pastor is that they're content to stay there. They've lost their appetite for God. They seem very happy with an elementary understanding of the Christian faith rather than pushing on in their understanding of doctrine and theology and Christian living. And, 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 and mind you, it's not just head knowledge. It's living it out too. It's living it out. It's causing him a lot of concern. And look, may I just say that I share that concern. I mean, and you do too, I suspect. I hope some of you do. As we look out amongst the, on the landscape of Christianity today, at least here in America, what do we see? I think we do see a lot of people, way too many people, who seem very content with a bland, childish, sentimental form of Christian inspiration. Christian bookstores are filled with it. So many people are so content with staying at the chicken soup for the soul level. And please, if you appreciate chicken soup for the soul, I'm not saying that's bad stuff. I'm saying it's not enough. I'm saying that's the ABCs. Let's move on. Let's build. Let's grow. I love what R.C. Sproul said. The problem is not that uh, you're not intelligent. The problem is that you're lazy. And as I look out in our congregation... Sometimes I share that concern. I wonder, can you articulate the main truths of the Christian faith? I remember I was at a presbytery meeting one time when a man was being examined for licensure. This is a fellow who went through seminary. And he was asked, what is the gospel? And he could not articulate the gospel. I know it's unbelievable. It was unbelievable to us that day too. But the Christian church is filled with a lot of people who are content with Christianity light. I'm telling you, that won't help you very much when the doctor says you've got cancer. Christianity light will not help you much when you lose a friend or when you've lost a job. You need something more. Because lazy minds produce weak lives. You cannot deal with the trials and temptations of life without a solid theological understanding underneath you. John Piper is a popular author among many people in our circles, and he said this one time. He said, God is not glorified by artificial and empty passions. True delight in God is rooted in true doctrine. God-centered exaltation is rooted in God-centered education. This is why 
one of the things at our church, we've, we've identified five ministry targets inside our church as far as what goes on in here. And one of them is to equip our people with biblical and theological literacy. We want you to have the tools you need to live a life that is chaos most of the time. To live a life that's filled with disappointment and tragedy. And the only way to get there is to be people who know God's word, who can articulate the basic truths of the Christian faith, and who love to dig deeper than that. You know, I know Presbyterians are often criticized for our love of doctrine. We are criticized, and rightly so, for sometimes our lack of emotionalism, expression, love for people. Yes, need to grow in all of those areas. But I'll never, ever apologize for our love of truth. Jesus said the truth will make you free. Your life will be qualitatively better when you're grounded deeply in God's word and in the body of truth that we consider the reformed faith. I'm not saying that we're always right either. God forbid that you should hear me saying that we're always right. But the day that you and I begin to retreat from study of the scriptures and faithfulness to the truth is the day we will begin to sink into irrelevance. So friends, let's listen to this pastor. He is rightly concerned for these professing Christians who say we love Jesus. And yet their lives didn't show forth an appetite for Jesus. So now that the author has identified this serious problem, and it is a serious one even in our day, in our culture, he gives now, he follows it up with a solemn warning. Let's read it again. Take it a little more carefully. Chapter 6, verse 4. It is impossible. And that means ain't going to happen. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the uh, Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again, and are subjecting him to public disgrace. Don't you agree those are some of the heaviest words of the Bible? Whatever they mean, those are very weighty words. The problem that the author identified at the end of chapter 5 becomes the reason that he gives this warning in chapter 6. He's concerned that if they continue on their present course they may be the ones who are described in verses 4 through 6. So the question we need to wrestle with is, who is the author describing? It seems that you have basically two choices. He's either describing true Christians who lose their salvation or false Christians who were never saved to begin with. So we know for one thing that he's describing people who fall away. Right? That phrase, fall away, that is, it's talking about people who utterly renounce their faith in Christ. In other words, they commit apostasy, what I was talking about earlier. And verses 4 and 5 list a number of things that these people who commit apostasy have experienced. Are they true believers who renounce their faith in Jesus, or are they false believers who were never saved to start with? Well, let's take a closer look. Let's take one at a time. There are five things in verses 4 and 5 we want to analyze. 
verse 4. It says that they've once been enlightened. That means that they have somehow been exposed to the gospel and its benefits. In some way, their paradigms were altered and they began to see life from a different angle. Secondly, they have tasted the heavenly gift. Some people believe that this is a reference to the Lord's Supper, that they've participated in communion, and that could be. Or it may simply refer to the blessings of God in general. But in a word, what it means is that these people have experienced the Lord. Okay? Third, they have shared in the Holy Spirit. That is, they have become partakers of the gifts or in the gifts or benefits of the Holy Spirit. And then we move on to verse 5. It says they have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. There's that word tasted again. It means that they have experienced the Scriptures in some way. There was a time when they never could get enough of the Bible, perhaps. But now those days appear to be over. But they did experience the Bible, the Scriptures that they were taught. And finally, they have tasted the powers of the coming age. Apparently, these people witnessed firsthand some of the signs and wonders of the Holy Spirit in the first century. You can read about some of those miracles in the book of Acts. Maybe they heard people speaking in tongues. Maybe they saw people healed, raised from the dead. We can't say for sure. The author doesn't elaborate. But there's a description of a group of people who, according to verse 6, may reach a point where they cannot be brought back to repentance. It's impossible he said in verse 4, for these people to have another opportunity to repent because, verse 6, to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again. Now, let's take a look at this and just think about it together. When you first look at this list, it sure sounds like a good description of people who are genuinely converted, right? I mean, when I look at that list, I, I think, well, that's true of me. I think that's true of you. These are people who have experienced the Lord in some way. So it seems like these five things are things that real Christians experience. Enlightenment, the heavenly gift, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, etc. But then verse 6 says, if they fall away. Oh no, now we're suddenly grappling with a whole nother thing. Because I said fall away means apostatize. It means to renounce your faith entirely, to deny the gospel, to turn your back on Jesus, not just for a little while, but permanently, finally. Can a genuine believer in Jesus do that? And the Bible comes back to us strongly and says no. No, not on your life. Can a real Christian, somebody who is really changed, Jesus said to Nicodemus, born again. No way that person could commit apostasy. Backslide? Yes. Uh, Lose a little bit of appetite for God for a while? Yes. Grow dull in the things of God for a while? Yes. But finally and utterly reject Jesus and be separated from Jesus Christ forever? No. Let me show you some Bible verses. Philippians 1.6 says... He who began a good work in you will continue it to the day of Jesus Christ. Carry it on to completion. John 6, 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. In the book of John again, John 10, 28, I give my sheep eternal life, said Jesus. They shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And then at the end of the book of Romans, chapter 8, 
Many of you have probably memorized these verses. Neither death nor life, angels nor demons, present or future, powers, height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. These and other Bible verses very clearly teach that you cannot lose what you really have. Once you are converted, you are always God's and he will see you all the way home. So if it's true that these verses rule out the possibility that true Christians can lose their salvation, what are we left with as an understanding of this passage? It means that this passage is describing false Christians. People who in many ways have experienced God might even think that they're born again, might have even said they're born again, have certainly identified themselves with the church, the covenant people of God, but actually they are not believers. The change of heart hasn't happened. They are not, in fact, born again. And you say, how in the world can that be, Mike? How can somebody who has experienced those things that we looked at not be genuinely converted? Well, it's like this diagram that I've put together. There are people who are in the larger covenant community who identify themselves with Christianity. Let's bring it home. There are people in our church who are on our membership role, who are in that bigger circle in terms of they are professing faith in Christ. But whether they are in the inner circle that only God knows or not, we, we, we can't say. Not in this life. God knows those who are his. But you need to look deeply inside yourself and be able to say, which circle am I in? I'm certainly in the big circle. I'm here at church. The big circle is those who give up a couple hours every Sunday morning and come to church like you are. You're a professor question is, are you a possessor? Notice that both groups get the same influences. They get to hear preaching and teaching. They, they have the duties and blessings of the covenant. The Holy Spirit acts upon them in some ways. And they get the light of the gospel. But the gospel hasn't yet penetrated the heart and produced life change. Now you might ask, how... You might be struggling with this. How can somebody have the influence of the Spirit, the light of the gospel, and have these blessings of the covenant and yet not be truly converted? There are examples in the Bible of people like that. Let me share some of them with you. Some biblical examples of apostates. People had all the blessings of the, of the covenant community but ended up rejecting Jesus as Savior and Lord. We begin with the nation of Israel back in the Old Testament era. They were guided by the light of God through the wilderness, right? They heard the voice of God on the mountain of Mount Sinai. They were fed by heavenly gift of manna out of heaven. They received the law, the prophets, the priesthood, the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, and so many other amazing spiritual blessings. And yet hundreds, thousands of them died without faith, disobedient idol worshipers all. Professors, but not possessors. King Saul is another Old Testament example. King Saul, back in 1 Samuel chapter 10, received the Spirit of God upon him. The Spirit of God came upon Saul, and he prophesied and identified himself with the group of prophets there. He shared in the Holy Spirit, we might say, 
and yet he went to his death without repentance. Consider a New Testament figure by the name of Demas, D-E-M-A-S. Demas was one of Paul's missionary companions. But somewhere along the way, he renounced his faith, and 2 Timothy 4.10 says that Demas ended up deserting Paul because he loved this present world. He said, Jesus, I know something about you, but I love this present age more than I love you. He renounced his faith. And then if you need the, the clincher example, who more than Judas Iscariot has tasted the heavenly gift, has, has been enlightened, has been impressed by the power of the word of God, has seen the powers of the coming age. Judas Iscariot was one of the 12 disciples. He's, he experienced all those things. He experienced God in his very presence. And yet, of course, he went to his death crucifying the Lord of glory. So all of those are examples in the Bible of people who experienced the light of God, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit and so on, but they were not saved. And in the end, they fell away. Jesus put it really starkly when he said in Matthew chapter 7, many, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, I went to church. I read Christian material. I went to Sunday school. Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and even perform many miracles? But see, they're in the outer circle only. They're they're professors. And Jesus says that one day he'll tell them, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Remember the parable of the sower and the seed? Jesus told a story one time about a sower, a farmer who threw seed to be planted. And among all uh, the other types of soil, some of the seed fell in rocky soil. That seed sprang up quickly. See, it was influenced by the seed. But when the sun came up, Jesus said the plants were scorched. They withered because they had no root. The disciples said, what do you mean by that rocky soil? And Jesus told them that the rocky soil represented people who hear the gospel and immediately respond with joy. But since they have no root, they only last a short while. And when trouble or persecution comes, they quickly fall away. Same English words as we see in Hebrews 6. Who are they? They're people who in the outer circle get a lot of the benefits of being identified with the covenant community. But it's not yet penetrated the heart and produced real life change. And by the way, that parable of the soil and the rocky soil and so on is almost exactly what the uh, writer of Hebrews is talking about in verses 7 and 8 of our text. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and produces a crop useful to those for whom it's farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it'll be burned. So again, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about people who have in many ways outwardly experienced God, outwardly identified themselves with the blessings of the covenant, but inwardly they are still self-worshippers. Inwardly they are still enemies of God, dressed up in religious garb. 
Heavy, heavy stuff. If I could put all this into my own words, I'd say it this way. Christians are people who stay true to Jesus to the very end. They're not true Christians because they stay true to the end. They stay true to the end because they are true Christians. If someone who professes to believe falls away, he or she never really had a saving relationship with Jesus Christ in the first place. How should you and I respond to this teaching? Hebrews 5 and 6. First, with humility and self-examination. Humility and self-examination. That's what the author is driving at in verse 11 of our text. Look at verse 11. He says, we want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. Make your hope sure. Don't rest in the fact that you've been raised in a Christian home. That won't get you to heaven. Don't rest in knowing you filled out a card or walked down the aisle of a church or were baptized. None of those things by itself brings you into that inner circle, the family of God. The questions that you need to answer are these. And here's just a sampling. I'm going to put them up on the screen. Think about these type of questions and take these away with you and mull these over. For example, is Jesus my trust, my joy, my hope right now? Have I from my heart seen and felt the ugliness of my sins, my independence, my control of other people, my worship of self, of money, of success, of sex, of comfort, and so on? And have I turned from those things to Jesus as my one and only healer and Savior? Another question, has the gospel captured me? Has it changed me? Has it made me new? Or do I just like to study it as a as a topic of theology? Am I growing in love for God's Word? You're not there yet. Look, we're all in process, right? But the question is, am I growing? Am I growing in my love? Do I desire to grow in my love for God's Word, for God's people, for God's mission? Do I desire to grow as a Christian? Does my life show the fruit of salvation? Or, look, just be honest. Am I lazy? Am I selfish? Am I unmotivated? Those are the kinds of questions that can get you thinking and get you humble and get you examining yourself because those are the type of questions that carry eternal consequences. Examine yourself and see if you're in the faith. And by the way, parents, you should be helping your children ask themselves these types of questions. Instead of of making your children feel that they're automatically saved, You should be asking your kids to ask themselves these type of questions. And now I can hear somebody else say, someone with a sensitive soul, someone with a tender, tender conscience. I can say, man, I'm hopeless. I've messed up so often. I know I don't love God enough. I know I don't want to grow enough. I know I'm so bad in so many ways. I'm just like these people who commit a... I'm just like these people who commit apostasy. I cannot be within the reach of God's grace. He must have put me on a shelf or else I wouldn't feel this way. Everybody else is strong. Everybody else fits the description of a mature Christian, but not me. I'm just hopeless. I might as well hang it all up. Does that describe you? That's not the proper response to this passage. No, the proper response is to put your faith in a sure promise. We've seen the problem. We've seen the warning What is the sure promise? It's in verse 10 of chapter 6 where the author says, God is not 
unjust. Four little words, but there's the gospel. God is not unjust. Another way of putting it is God is just. And that reminds me of 1 John 1, 8, 9. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, if you think you've arrived, I'm really worried about you. No, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But here's what you do. If you are one with a tender heart today, if you're one who is feeling the conviction of God's spirit and you, you wonder if God loves you or not, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God can be just in forgiving you because he wouldn't dare Punish you for sins he's already punished Jesus for. He's faithful. He's just. Simply, if you this morning know that you've got a long way to go, if you this morning know that you aren't all that you should be nor could be, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to God and simply believe the good news that Jesus died in the place of weak, flawed, sinful human beings like you and me. Believe that. Rest in that. For every one look you take at your sin, take ten looks at the cross. Cling to Jesus. Cling to the crucified one. He will get you all the way home. Not to do that would mean he was not God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this hard, but in a way encouraging passage of Scripture because it throws us upon Jesus. It teaches us that we really cannot rest in our own works and our own righteousness. We cannot rest in the record that we've accumulated over time. Lord, we have to rest in Jesus and in him alone. And I, I pray, Father, today for people who, who really honestly might say to themselves right now, I'm a, I'm a professor only. I've, I've not really repented of sin. I've not really turned away in disgust from my sinful self and received Jesus as my Savior. I've not really confessed my sins to him. I've just been a churchgoer. Lord, if there's somebody like that here, I pray that that they might repeat these words in their own heart right after me. Lord, I, I need you. I need you in my life. Please step in. Take control. Cleanse me from my sins. Make me your child. Fill me with your spirit. Give me a new life, Lord, because I hear from these verses today that I'm in desperate need of it. And I thank you that you died to give it to me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.